Slavo. Paz. All right, let's 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 get right into it. Today, on Thanksgiving, we have Helen Keller, which I must admit, she's not a very, like, Thanksgiving episode. <laughs> there's not there's not a very, uh, it just so happens to be that we're recording on Thanksgiving. It so happens to be, but, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> it works. All right, so she was born June 27th. 1880 in Alabama, and by all accounts, you know, a happy, healthy child. She walked pretty quickly. She could say words quickly, like wah-wah. But then, when she is about 19 months old, she contracts an unknown illness. She gets very sick, very high fever. The doctors, they're concerned that she might not make it. And at the time, I think they, they wrote it down as like brain fever, Later, people think it might have been either scarlet fever or meningitis, which they didn't know about the time, but very sick. And then the fever goes away and her family's very happy. She's miraculously recovering. But the mom one day like waves her hands in front of Helen Keller and notices like she doesn't blink. She has no reaction. And they find out Helen Keller at 19 months uh, has gone blind and deaf. Which is very unfortunate to not only go blind, but also to go deaf. Yes. <laughs> yeah, very unfortunate. She loses her sight and hearing. Two of the five senses, you know, right? Sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch. Slavo, I implore you to rank these five senses. <laughs> On Thanksgiving, what are the five your most, like order them how thankful you are for the five senses? How thankful I am for them? So the first most thankful I am to down to the least thankful. Yeah, yeah. Or you can start from the bottom up, whatever you prefer. Start it from the bottom. Uh, all right. I'm going to start with most thankful, just because I think that's it's easier. Most thankful for sight, for sure. Absolutely. 100%. I agree. I think if you're going to go through life without one of the five or without one of the five senses, going through life without sight is probably the most um, annoying when yeah. it comes to um, just going through day-to-day life. So I'm very thankful for sight for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. Number two. Oof, oof, oof. I'm going to go with another day-to-day. I think I just keep thinking about how this is just going to affect me in day-to-day life. I think I have to go for hearing that I'm thankful yeah. for hearing. <laughs> Don't really know how to put touch on the board. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> don't know how to put touch on the board. Yeah, well, worth noting, I agree with the ranking so far, but these are the two she's going without. Two of the five most important senses, and I would rank sight as so high. Like sight so is definitely like far and away number one. Yeah, and then I was between hearing and taste for number two. Okay, because if you lose your sense of taste, I think that it it makes certain aspects of life, food, it makes it less enjoyable and it can kind of take joy out of your life. So that's why I think people will say that it's kind of, and I love to eat. I love food. So it's like food brings me a lot of joy. So I think it would take out a lot of joy from my life, but I have to put hearing above that because it's like not being able to hear would be just much more difficult on a day to day. Yeah. Like communicating with people and, you know, having to do sign language. Many people don't know it. So you have to communicate through like written word or whatever. Yeah. Not having hearing would be very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be very difficult day to day. So that's why I'm going to put it there from like a luxury perspective. I'm going to put taste after that. I think the next three, it's like much less still touch though. I don't know how to, I don't know how to rank that one, but 
I think the next three are much more like luxuries, whereas the first two are like utilities, like you need yeah, them, which absolutely. is why, again, Helen Keller is so impressive. Exactly. Those are the two that she loses, the most utilitarian. Um, so I'm going to go taste next. Then I'm going to go touch because you know those people who like don't like can't feel pain? Yes, exactly. If yeah. you don't have touch, like maybe it's a good thing in some ways. <laughs> if you're like a stunt devil and don't care how long you live. Yeah, like like anything could happen. I'm sure if you're walking down the street, you bump into somebody, you won't feel it. But vibrations, yeah. like if you don't, if you're just like, uh, yeah, I feel something. I mean, yeah, but you like you drink coffee is too hot, burns your throat. It, people who don't have touch are like, they have to be very careful. They're not seriously hurt, hurting themselves because they don't feel any pain on their body. Like they could, yeah. So that's that's a or crazy pleasure. one. Or pleasure. Yes, or pleasure. <laughs> Making. Deep eye contact. <laughs> it, just, it wouldn't be the same. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna go with that, and then I'm gonna say a distant five is smell. Oh, I, I even forgot about smell. Yeah, they, that's off. Forgot about smell, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, smells a little overrated. My dad, I I don't know if he has like like a sinus problem or something like that, but he. All growing up, he was always like he had, he had like a ten to fifteen percent sense of smell. Like can't, I think it inhibits your taste because they say a lot of taste comes from smell. Yeah. So I'm putting taste all the way up at three, and then I put smell all the way down at five. And if I lose my smell, like that could hurt my taste. But smell, I, I don't like a lot of smells. Exactly, especially human smells. Like how many human smells are good? Um, well, they say like pheromones smell good. Yeah, but do you even know what that smells like? I feel like it's just it's like kinda, subconscious. Yeah, it's yeah. like subconscious. Um, yeah, I, I guess that smells good. I think there's a lot of things that smell good. I think food. I think of food again. I'm very food motivated. So uh, I just how does how does it affect food? Um, so food's good. I think like the smell of like a like a beautiful morning or something like that. The dew, that dew mm-hmm. smell, that's mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. But I could go without it. I think it looks cool. Too. Absolutely. So and, as long as I, I have yeah. my sight. So yeah, I, I agree with your rankings, especially the two most important sight and hearing. These are, you know, the five senses humans have. Yep. And but you hear sometimes animals have other senses. Okay. Um, have you heard of, you know, how the sharks have a sense to detect people in water? I feel like I always heard that as a kid. Have you heard of that? Um, I was actually looking I was reading about it in the process of this which I have like the most rudimentary idea of what it is. It's something about like electrical currents with like the electrical currents between water and the skin of animals. The sharks can sense that. Yeah. They, I, I don't exactly. They have some jelly that comes to the pores of their face. And I guess it allows them to distinguish the electrical signal, of the water versus the animal that occupies the space, you know, kind of in the water. And, and that's nuts. Here's another one pit vipers so snakes and they basically have built-in night vision goggles where like night vision goggles they can determine heat so if they see a person who admits heat or another animal they can see that at night and allows them to see the person because they have kind of that heat vision it's like thermal that's pretty cool exactly and how scary is that like as if snakes aren't already scary enough that at night, if you're walking, they can detect you. 
Can't say I'm surprised. Skanks. <laughs> I just said skanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me say that. Can't say I'm surprised. <laughs> Snakes are terrifying animals. Yeah, they're so terrifying. And so this snake, the pit viper, it's in like Texas, California, Mexico, all throughout North America. Yeah, that's terrifying. The The idea that I'm going to be walking around in the nighttime and there's there's a snake stalking me is yeah. uh is pretty intimidating to think about but that but it's pretty common for animals like that's like an interesting because it's different because it's like the thermal vision but there's a lot of animals that can see in the nighttime pretty well just because of their vision yeah yeah i guess think about like owls yeah. i think a lot of times it's just because they they have different like eye makeup so they can they can let in more light in their eyes I think that's yeah. why owls have really big eyes. Yeah, they do have big eyes. Yeah. And an animal like a cat, for example, that's why when you see a cat in the daytime, like you can like, it's just like a little slit. Like you can mm-hmm. barely, because no light is getting in, but in the nighttime it opens up way bigger. Yeah. So like any light gets in and then they can see much better in the, in the nighttime. So yeah. if like in the middle of the day, if you're, if you're um, black dot, Pupil. Now, I think I'm thinking that your pupil. pupil. So if your pupil is large in the daytime, like we're sitting here right now, then you're probably not going to see very well at night. Yeah. Uh, and I think they also say your pupils, human pupils get large when you're looking at someone and you're attracted to them. So it's So another animal that has an interesting sense, elephants. They can, in rudimentary means, communicate through the ground where the elephant's feet if another elephant up to like 10 miles away makes noise and signals that you know there's an approaching enemy or something an elephant 10 miles away can feel it in their feet and react to it and they've done studies scientists have mimicked the vibrations elephants create in these seismic waves underground with no sound at all and these elephants 10 miles away react to these Same. mimicked what what they're, like what they're mimicking yeah just by, by like making these vibrations in the ground and 10 miles away an elephant feels it in his feet and like reacts nervously that's pretty cool yeah. that's very interesting um another one that i read about was bats vampire mm-hmm. bats they can smell like the warmth of your skin like if they're feeding like if your skin is above 86 degrees, they can sense it. Mm, they can, cause they want your blood or is this vampires? Do, do bats like blood? Um, bats, vampire bats like blood. So they can sense if your skin is like warm enough that they would want your blood. <laughs> Crazy. Have we talked about like rabies and like how that works? <laughs> Dude, I know nothing about rabies. Somebody was telling me about rabies and it like scared the shit out of me. I'm going to scare the people crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you die. If you don't, if if you get rabies and it goes untreated, you die hundred percent of the time. Uh, You, if you get rabies, you are going to die. Do you go crazy? Do you attack people? Yep. You, you go crazy. They like have to like, I I presume they have to like lock you up and, and then you just like die because it like shuts down your nervous system. And the way that it works is bats or something will give you, there's not that many cases of it, but it happens. So you Mm -hmm. get rabies and then if you don't get a, sh- I think it's seven days that if you don't get a rabies shot, because we have a treatment for it, but there's only a certain amount of time that it works. 
Yeah. So if you don't get a, sh- uh, a rabies shot within um, seven days and you have rabies, like you're a goner. Dude, that's crazy. Yeah. So, it's, so, yeah it's so weird. It messes up your like mental acuity. Well, yeah, it like shuts down like your brain function. So you just like go crazy on your way out. And yeah. so this is a good PSA for everyone. I mean, take it from Slavo. I'm not a medical expert, but this is what I've heard. I've been told by people <laughs> in the know. <laughs> so if you wake up in the morning and there's like a bat in your house or a bat in your room, in your bedroom, they say to go get a rabies shot mm-hmm. because bats have like tiny little teeth and you like may not even find the mark if they bit you, but bats are carriers of rabies. So if there's like a 0.01% chance that the bat bit you in your sleep and you don't even feel it because their teeth are so small, you could have contracted rabies without knowing it. And then if you go two weeks and then like start to notice symptoms, there's nothing you can do. Oh, that's crazy. That's awful news. Just, Hey, you're going to go crazy and die. And is this, mm-hmm. is this like a zombie situation where they then start biting other people? It, I mean, they can definitely spread the rabies because like uh, an it starts biting other people. I mean, I mean, you can spread it, but I imagine like, I don't know, maybe like if you start going crazy, I don't know exactly because yeah, like in the movies, like people like they start foaming at the mouth, but that's, oh, that's yeah. real. Like I, I looked foam, up rabies yeah. on like Wikipedia and it's kind of terrifying. They show like dogs or whatever because dogs when they get yeah. rabies, they like they're foaming at the mouth, which is pretty oh. common. So I imagine like people, like you don't know what they're going to do kind of thing. So they like, yeah. they, they could bite you, I guess. But, um, but yeah, so specifically with bats in the house, if you have a bat in your house, but you and but and you were asleep for any period of time, it could have bit you in your sleep, and then go get a rabies shot because you never know. Yeah, that's crazy. I, and I always thought rabies was like a done deal. Like we we solved that issue years ago. I think. I mean, I think it's just so rare. It's very rare, but like it's a big world out there, so it, like it happens like every once in a while. It's it'd be tough going through you know, world and dark where you can't see and, and in silence when you can't hear. But this is the life that Helen Keller has with, with her senses. And so at this young age, what is her life like? She lives through touch, smell, and vibration. So if she's walking around, she's always touching stuff. People are always holding her hand, guiding her with vibrations. She could hear like if people are running down the stairs and they think guests are coming, then someone will she's aware of it because of all the activity. Someone will grab her hand. They teach her to like wave when then people get there, people mm-hmm. tend to give her a treat. So she eats it. But then when everyone's just hanging out, you know, she's just, you know, sitting there doing whatever. And she's, and she's got that heightened sense of like the vibrations. There's so much stuff where she's like, she becomes hypersensitive to vibrations. Like she can tell when certain family members walk into the room because she can like feel the different vibrations in their footsteps. Yeah. So she can recognize people. Exactly. Yeah. She's really good at those senses. We, we like kind of disregard. And I think scientifically they even show some of the neurons that for blind people, they get repurposed to improve your hearing and your smell and touch. So she's definitely has like superpowers, smell. Yeah. I don't know if this is insensitive. <laughs> and this could maybe parlay into like a things Helen Keller would have been really good at. Oh, How do you yeah. think she would have been as a food critic? Oh, Wow she must have been so good. Like she has such a heightened sense of taste. That's a, she would probably, she'd be so good as a food critic. Taste and smell. Like she would have that because, because I mean, blind, 
one def you like that's like the added amplification of yes. your taste and your smell mm-hmm. because you have two different senses that you're that you don't have and then so especially as she like grew to be able to communicate pretty eloquently mm-hmm. i think it could have been cool although they, they in food critics like sight is kind of presentation and things like that but she could have somebody help with that she would have been great yeah, yeah, and the presentation, I mean, come on, yeah, it's all about the taste. Yeah, that's such a good point that she would be very good at it. And she remarked, like, as a kid at this age, she loved Christmas time partially because of the food, and she would go into the kitchen and get – people would sneak her treats, and she loved the smell. Oh, so, yeah, exactly. And But, again, at this time, she's very frustrated because she can't communicate and – this time in her life is really defined by her throwing a lot of tantrums in her book. She names herself the phantom and she is just, she describes later that she's really upset because she can't communicate. She's not really interacting with the outside world as probably people are supposed to. And so she's very frustrated and in having constant tantrums. Yep. And it's kind of impressive. She's smart enough to kind of make these realizations where she understands that she's different. She understands that she's missing. Cause I mean, you lose your sight, you lose your hearing at, at 19 months old. Like there's all these things that are happening in the outside world that you may not understand that you're, that you are missing them. So the fact that she was able to, to make that realization at a young age is, is very impressive. Yeah. She said she would hold her hand up to people's mouth and she could tell they were talking, communicating somehow but she realized when she did it, it, it didn't work. So she, she was aware that like there was this way of communicating. Um, so her family at this time, like they really are kind of at a loss of what to do. And, and I read at this time, a lot of people would end up sending their kids away to some institute because they're in Alabama, but there are institutes way off in different places. And a lot of families would send them off and honestly, like never really see them again or, and stuff like that. But her family trying to figure out what to do. And so they went, they went to an eye, ear, and nose doctor who referred them to Alexander Graham Bell. Slavo, did you know who he was before this? The, I think from a previous podcast, we've talked about him. Maybe it was Tesla that we talked about him a little bit. Yeah. Um, he was the inventor of the telephone. Exactly. Like that's the known thing about Alexander Graham Bell is he invented the telephone. And it's kind of funny that Alexander Graham Bell, he invents this device that people can communicate via hearing and talking long distances. And his like specialty and what he's known for is helping deaf people. <laughs> did you know that his wife is deaf? Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. His wife is deaf. And I think he had a sibling growing up that was partially deaf at least. And so he knew sign language. Wow. So it's, it's interesting. I guess he's just an expert in, you know, kind of hearing and auditory stuff, but it's interesting that he is inventing this device that helps people who can hear. More interestingness on Alexander Graham Bell later. <laughs> Exciting. She goes and meets him and he suggests uh, going to the Perkins Institute for the Blind, which is in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Perkins Institute of Blind sets Helen Keller up with and Sullivan, Annie Sullivan. This is huge. They end up having like a lifelong relationship, mm-hmm. Anne Sullivan, and she goes to Helen Keller in Alabama. 
starts working with her and trying to teach her to communicate. Yeah, Ann, Sol- Ann Sullivan, she was, I think she was 20 at the time that she went down to Alabama, and she was a graduate of the, she had some sort of hearing loss. And so she was a graduate of the Perkins Institute, and then, or she was an alumni, and then she uh, ended up helping Helen. Yeah. The main way she began trying to communicate with Helen was writing stuff on her hand. It took a while and Helen was frustrated and didn't know what she was doing. But then there was this iconic moment when she would put Helen's one hand underwater and then she would write, you know, W-A-T-E-R in Helen's other hand. And there was this light bulb moment. And now Helen realizes all these things have a name and you can kind of communicate and spell objects. And she immediately wants to learn how to spell a bunch of objects and just like she is immediately wants to pursue learning language which is crazy and the more you read about it it's still i think we would have to do a lot deeper research on how this kind of education occurs because going from that moment where you can feel water but then be able to connect letters to it and then apply those letters to other things the fact that they were able to make that jump was like pretty crazy to think about like it's it's even hard to even imagine it yeah i think it's hard to even imagine what life is what you've never really experienced sight or hearing and the outside world and i think you probably you brought you like i imagine your brain just functions differently how you imagine things functions differently and and you're at such a disadvantage but here helen is learning how to communicate and it just it takes off she um begins to learn to read through raised text. So it's just like, you know, you see the word and the the word is just raised. So you can run your hand over it and feel the word. So she starts reading and it takes off. And she also, you know, at some point learns Braille, but she's very successfully um, learning to read and educating herself. And Anne writes to the Perkins Institute of the Blind, which originally sent her to Helen and describes about Helen's success. And, you know, she's this like 10 year old girl who's reading Shakespeare, learning history and Perkins Institute of the Blind is impressed. They just, they write an annual report and they title one, their annual report and they emphasize Helen Keller. And this brings her to fame. And she's a young girl, probably around 10 years old. And she has fame because people are really amazed at this girl who is deaf and blind but can read and educate and live this life. Here's an interesting story to give you an idea of how famous she was. I think at one point, a police officer accidentally kills her dog. And this is such a story that it makes the headlines in a bunch of newspapers and people start sending her a bunch of letters. And again, she's this young girl, but even at this time, she kind of used her fame and was like, oh, you're like people are contacting her. She's like, there's this guy, Tommy Stringer, and he's also blind and deaf. And she was able to rally people with her fame to send him to Perkins Institute of the Blind. So that gives you an idea of how kind of famous she was, but you know, she's using it um, to help other people who have these difficult uh, disabilities. Yep. Yeah, she continues to evolve in how she communicates. She can understand what people are saying by reading lips with her hands. So when someone's talking, she would put her hand on their lips. And based off of that, she can understand what they are saying. That's pretty cool. Wild. She learns to write, which, again, you can't see. But I think, as I understand it, they kind of write each character in like a little square they kind of think of. And and she learns to write. So she's now communicating that way. She's learning Braille and all these different versions of Braille. So she's really expanding how she can communicate. 
Yeah. So, you know, it, it makes you wonder if someone lives nowadays and in the future, kind of what, what is out there for technology. And it also made, made me think like, if you go back a thousand years ago in like medieval times and you were born with out sight or hearing, like you're just fucked. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely in trouble. You almost have to wonder like whether or not people are just like not going to help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's yeah, going to be oh, no absolutely. consideration for you. They're going to be like, yeah. oh, you're, you're blind. But I mean, you like to think so in like a progressive society, like maybe like the Romans or the Greeks or something like that, that they would have <laughs> found a way to communicate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So one of the main things that would help someone if this occurred today, well, first of all, vaccines. If it was meningitis, we have a meningitis vaccine. So it could have been prevented. Yep. That's good. Another thing is like antibiotics, both meningitis and scarlet fever, which they think she potentially had, could have been most likely treated with antibiotics. And then there's there's a lot more like social work for people born blind and deaf now. Like there is free public education. And a lot of this honestly came in part because of Helen Keller's role later in life where she is this big figure and she's using it to promote different laws, encourage accessibility for the blind like there's a lot like she helped make it so there's a lot more braille books in libraries but also so now there's a lot of technology they have like displays that um, you can communicate with and it'll show in braille so if someone like texts you it'll pop up in braille on this electronic display yeah also phones now they are very like phone activated so you can just talk into your phone if you get a text you can have it like read to you yeah. Um, you can navigate your phone through Siri and things like that, where mm-hmm. you can uh, where you can navigate it that way. Yeah, and his smartwatches can act as GPS and give you vibrations for like when to turn or in different really? directions. Yeah. yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. So about Braille, interesting thing about Braille. Braille. Did you know that the person who developed Braille, Lewis Braille, he came up with the language or he came up with the technique when he was twenty. He was actually um, he was actually blind, and he was like a big like reader and writer, and he like wanted to develop a, like a smarter system. So he developed mm-hmm. Braille when he was like twenty. The first iteration of Braille when he was like twenty years old. There was like a different version that was somewhat similar. Like he also used the raised dots, mm-hmm. but he like really like simplified it and made it better. Yeah, cool. Do you know when that was? Just curious. Um, I want to say it was the late. 1700s i don't have it in front of me yeah yeah interesting Um, here's a here's a question do you know why braille is not raised letters i do not i imagine for some reason it's faster so the reason is is that yes it's faster so with raised letters if you were to do a raised letters like if you think about like a capital a and then a capital b like they feel different, but there's no, if you're not looking at it visually, it's all based on touch. So if you're not looking at it visually, like there's no need for them to look so different. Like all you have to do is delineate them in like some way. So Braille is like by using the dots, it's just like a much faster way to do it. Whereas like if you were using shapes, it would take longer to discern what is happening because Braille is so distinct because it's like dot, 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 space, mm-hmm dot dot space so it's like much easier to delineate different shapes 
because it's just a series of dots. So it's like kind of working that way as opposed to actual shapes with each letter where if you run over like an I or an L or something like that, they like could feel more similar. So it's just like to make it so it's much more like feel specialized and faster that way. So it just takes out the visual aspect. 100%. Interesting. Makes sense. Yeah. Probably like a system design for visual people, you know, there's probably better ways to make it work for um, people who don't have any sight. Um, so some stuff in the future, there's a lot of hope with like genes therapy and cell regeneration. But one thing that uh, I was really impressed with, and it kind of exists now, these bionic eyes, uh, specifically one called Argus 2. Have you heard of them? Did you come across them? I have not heard of this. Okay. And so how this works is it is a brain implant. They put electrodes on your retina, which is like soft tissue on the back of your eye. And then you have these like a sick ass men in black glasses and you know, it's gadgeted out with like a computer and all that. And there's a camera and it will send what it sees to these electrodes, this implants in your brain. And um, people have been able to see lights different shapes like they could recognize a door frame if the colors contrast enough and even letters and they have to train blind people to make it work but they can even see letters like these people have had no sight they have these brain implants and they're able to like see letters which which is just uh, crazy and that's really impressive and we've talked about brain implants before and neuralink yeah would you if, if you were blind you would you get these implants if they can help you see a little bit better. Yeah. If I could afford it or if there was like some sort of grant system uh, that would let me, that would let me do it. And if I thought it was, I mean, I think at the end of the day, anybody who's trying to do any sort of elective procedure is weighing the cost, whether or not they can afford it and then waiting like the likelihood that it's going to benefit them. And then I think if those two things match up, I would do it for sure. But if it was going to cost a million dollars, but and it was going to be like, it was like a 10% chance of working. I don't know. Sight is one of those things that it's like, even if it costs this like immense sum of money, if you're especially, I mean, it goes both ways. Somebody who loses their sight, they, they're going to want that back. It's, it's an extremely meaningful life thing. And if somebody who's never had it, like being able to have that sensation of sight would be pretty amazing too. So I, I think if I was in that situation, I would probably go to pretty much any extent to have the opportunity. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes in the future. And yeah, in case it wasn't clear as how it works, it has a camera and it sends like electrical signals wirelessly to implants you have in the back of your brain, which know which... So it bypasses your... It does the same thing that your eyes would do, but it does it like electronically stimulating your brain so they i imagine they they figured out what what pull what electronic pulses your eyes create as they see things and then they mimicked them with the yeah. that's pretty yeah. cool i think they like activate your ganglion cells and it's not exactly mimicking sight i think it's a little different but they can you know see letters which they couldn't before so definitely well for on the hearing side there's something that we do have which is cochlear implants where it's a similar thing. It's like an implant into your, and I'm not too, too familiar with exactly how it works, but I believe it bypasses your auditory system in your ear and cochlear. Do you know how, where it gets that name? Similar to Braille. Okay. So uh, 
I thought cochlear was like some like tissue or something you had in your ear. Is it? I like- just tried to trick you. <laughs> I just tried to trick you. I'm sorry. Cochle- the cochlea is a part of your inner ear. Okay. It's a segment of your inner ear. Um, I'm sorry. You're looking at me like. You're a sly one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried to trick you. It's, yeah, it's like a part of your inner ear. So what it does is like you have these like little hairs in your ear, in your cochlea, and it like stimulates the hairs to create these vibrations that then create like a sound like sensation in your body yeah crazy yeah which is pretty crazy and that's something that they've um the first cochlear implant was invented in 1957 so yeah pretty new exciting stuff hopefully some of the stuff becomes uh, a reality in the future do you have any other technologies Cell phones, we talked about those. How about uh, white canes? Not a technology, but canes yeah, for uh, someone who's blind walking around with a cane. Mm-hmm, yeah. I thought it was interesting. Do you know why? Do you know why a lot of them are white? I have no idea. Maybe because some people have like partial blindness and they can actually distinguish a little bit of the color contrast with a very white stick. But what's the actual answer? Just well, that's yeah, that's that's about it. The um, 1921 just give credit where it's due james biggs he had a a walking stick for um walking around like to and from work and he decided to paint it white so it was easier to see in traffic so if he was like walking across the street or something like that so it'd be more visible to people walking around yeah yeah he was probably yeah as the first person doing it he was probably just knocking everyone over (laughs) he's like all right they need people need to be able to see this all right thank you biggs so she has these abilities to communicate and she loves writing and writes the frost king it's a book she publishes it she's young people are so impressed with the work and then she gets accused of plagiarizing there's another book called the frost fairies which is very similar and uh from helen keller's point of view and her handlers they had no recollection of reading this book but they they're saying okay well probably Helen read it. She reads a lot of books, kind of forgot, didn't specifically remember it, and then kind of regurgitated a lot of the ideas, the title apparently. <laughs> and But other people are saying, no, they intentionally knew what they were doing. And it, she was on like almost trial within the Perkins Institute of the Blind. It, it was very dramatic. Do you have any thoughts on it? Like, do you think they intentionally copied it? Does it matter to you? Mm, I'm not sure how much it matters. I do think it's hard to believe that somebody would read a book and then forget about the book and then write a similar book. (laughs) Yeah. For me, it would depend on how similar. If it's just like a general idea. Yeah. If it's like the name and maybe some themes, anytime you go into themes, I think that's like the reader kind of places the, the um, onus on that. Sometimes it's maybe not exactly what the author intended. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the name probably could use a different word other than frost, but if yeah. it was something like just the name or just mm-hmm. a couple of themes from the book, then, yeah. then I think then that might be overblown. Yeah. But it, I mean, if it's copying like the story in a lot of ways. Yeah. It, it, and it sounds like it was, uh, <laughs> the name frost, I think comes from Jack Frost. So anyways, I, so I think it was a little blown out of proportion and they're almost trying to like punish her. And then because it was so tabloidy where she's this big name, it gets a ton of publicity and it really affects her and upsets her. But yeah, so this was upsetting to her and she, but eventually she bounces back and gets back into her enthusiasm for learning. And she goes to the Cambridge school of young ladies, which is almost, it's a preparatory, it's a school to prepare you to go to Radcliffe, 
which is the the sister college of Harvard. At the time, women couldn't go to Harvard, so this is the Harvard that women can go to. <laughs> yep the the women's college at the time. Yep, called Radcliffe, and she gets admitted quite the feat and she goes there takes a lot of classes really excels she you know learns english french german greek the written languages (laughs) and she's vice president of the class she's really excelling and they're definitely not trying to give her any special treatment i mean she has Anne Sullivan with her all the time translating to teachers and kind of telling her what the teachers are saying. Some teachers even go to the extent to learn the hand language, and the hand language is where they sign or make letters with their hand, and Helen Keller's hand is around it. And that's like how Helen would be sitting in class and Sullivan would be next to her kind of signing, and Helen would have her hand on and Yeah, like into her hand. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool yeah. to think about. Very impressive. And so this is how she's learning and the school is very careful to make sure Anne Sullivan's not helping her at all. She's really not given any like handouts and she performs really well, gets like graduates with honors. And, you know, she's the first, <laughs> probably to no surprise, but like the first deaf blind person to do this, to get this degree. Mm, yeah. Very impressive achievement. Yeah. And during this time she goes back to publication and she publishes the story of my life, which I think she's about 22 at the time and it just, she kind of talks about her life up to this point and, you know, it was reasonably successful when she first published it, but now it's like an iconic book and the New York library recognizes it as one of the 100 most important books written. Yes. So then she graduates her next step. She kind of is almost an activist and a speaker. She works with the American foundation for the blind as like an advisor and fundraiser. She helps get money from Henry Ford and John D Rockefeller. She's a big name and she's helping push along state legislation, federal legislation to, as we said, get libraries filled with braille books, get public schools for anyone with vision loss. You know, she meets the presidents. This is kind of crazy. She met every single president from Grover Cleveland to JFK. That is like 12 presidents. That includes Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, Eisenhower, Truman, just like every president wants to meet her because of, you know, her influence, her inspiration um, within the blind community and just at large. That's really impressive. Yeah. She she was such a notable person in her time and she was, did a lot to advance a lot of uh, causes, whether it be um, racial equality, women's equality, any number of causes she was she was on the front lines a lot of times yeah exactly and i think she helped found helen keller international which is i think it was like a spin-off or part of the the american blind foundation but you know for international purposes and it's still operating today and it's like a very well-renowned organization which tries to help a lot of people who are blind and i guess they say most people who are blind today in the world are in countries that don't have the resource for proper nutrition or medical equipment. So most people who are blind, it is um, preventable and treatable, you know, if they have the right resources. So, you know, if anyone's listening, definitely a great organization to donate to uh, the Helen Keller international. I don't know when the best time to bring it up though, but something interesting (laughs) about (laughs) Helen Keller and um, I don't mean it in like a gotcha kind of way. So something because it's curious where it's like someone to have a um, companion, somebody who's working with you all the time. Like you assume that you're like the family must come from some money. 
Mm-hmm. And do you know, do you know uh, where like her family's wealth came from? So I know her dad uh, fought in the Confederate army, was a captain. Um, he, and he would later became an editor and yeah, I heard. And I think before that they owned slaves, um, like her, her dad did. I think Helen was born in 1880 after the civil war, but yeah. yeah. So her, her dad was a captain in the Confederate army. Her grandfather on her mom's side was a general in the Confederate army and her family before the civil war did own slaves and lost a lot of their wealth through the civil war and after, but that is like kind of, they are from Alabama. They were pretty prominent. They were a pretty prominent Confederate family beforehand, which I mean, it just makes it so like the fact that she went on to be what she was, which was like a champion for people with disabilities, people with a lot of like differences from like the traditional ruling class, which is something that you would think that her family would be against. I guess it makes it impressive that she was able to, to grow into such a champion for equality that she became in later years. Yeah. I mean, if there is anyone who is going to be able to judge people based on the content of their character and not how they look like she is the person. (laughs) Yeah. So she goes on and publishes many other books, some of them about religion, some on socialism, as we mentioned in social problems, she writes a biography on and Annie Sullivan. Um, She wrote for magazines about blindness, just to touch on the aspect of her, you know, being involved, being involved in socialism. I think it it makes a lot of sense. And she probably has experience where people in her situation, where she has this rather rare condition of being deaf and blind Mm -hmm. with capitalism, there's not going to be a a lot of market forces that um, encourage people to invent technologies and help people in her situation because there's not a lot of them and they, you know, how much money can you actually make if you're catering to such a small portion of people. And so I, I do imagine that probably played a role in her views on socialism and thinking that you may need a government entity that's not uh, working towards profit to help other people who are in her situation. So I just mm-hmm. kind of feel like that made a lot of sense. Yep. Yep. I agree with that. And she gets involved in a Hollywood movie which at the time they are silent movies. The movie she was in was Deliverance and it was basically about her life and with Ann Sullivan. It it actually wasn't that big of a hit, surprisingly. And she ends up spending a lot of time on the vaudeville circuit, which uh, we touched upon before in our Harry Houdini podcast. But it's like basically like a high class circuit where circus where people perform stuff. Like Harry Houdini did all his escapes um, and some magic tricks. And Annie and Helen would go and they would talk about Helen's life and how she was able to learn despite uh, not being able to see and hear. And I know initially uh, Helen's mom and Ann Sullivan were like a little opposed to it. They kind of felt like she was being put on a display in a circus. But, you know, Ann was all for it and was like, I have this talent and I can show it off. And there was this one semi-documented love affair and potentially secret engagement with she had a lot she had a lot of admirers <laughs> yeah but it, you know it was secret i don't think she's one to kiss and tell so <laughs> i'm not i didn't look too much into what actually happened but it's worth noting probably the most important was this this guy peter and he was a boston herald reporter i don't know if, if you looked into this at all you got into the drama I didn't. I didn't look into into it too much, other than other than the fact that they had a, a relationship, 
I just can't get over it and we can cut this out. <laughs> Why did you say she, I don't think she'd be the one to kiss and tell. <laughs> I said just because there's a lot of speculation about their love life. It was very tabloid. I know, it, just, it just made me laugh. It just I made know. me laugh. And someone like wrote a fictional book about her and this guy, which I find is so weird. Like they just decided to fill in the pieces. And so that's what I mean. There's just so much like, drama yeah. and story about it but you know yeah, she really was like a t- she was like a tabloid celebrity in many ways yeah yeah and so then later on you know after world war ii there's a lot of soldiers who were who had become blind and deaf via the combat and the use of mustard gas and a lot of those weapons um which is very tragic stuff stuff and helen keller would go around and visit these army and naval hospitals and encourage them and teach them how they can live a life despite these handicaps. So yeah, pretty cool thing she did. Yeah, very cool. And then um, she ended up passing away June 1st, 1968 at the age of 87. So a very long life, which I thought was kind of interesting because whenever I thought of Helen Keller, I always pictured like a young girl. So I didn't realize she had um, such a long life. Mm-hmm. But I, I do imagine she had a, a pretty great immune system, given that she's always touching people's mouths with uh, her hands. Wow. I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah. She's probably exposing herself to all sorts of different uh, uh, things. So, yeah, she definitely probably had a pretty good immune system. And 87, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good long life. On to some random Helen Keller things. Okay. So... <laughs> Did you know she was into eugenics? What? <laughs> like, isn't eugenics just like the murder of a race? Or is this just like uh, enlighten us? So eugenics is, I have the exact definition here. Eugenics is described as the aim to improve the genetic quality of the population. So when you think about eugenics, like something that pops into mind is Nazi Germany, a country who seemed to put this into practice with the extermination of specific races and um, trying to promote a specific pure race, which is an example. But it in the early 20th century, this was something that was like, it was this idea that was like actually pretty common, like not just in Germany. It was like pretty common in the United States where people were trying to say that like you want to promote the like reproduction of like these like really pure people. And someone like Helen Keller actually endorsed some of these thoughts where she said like in her case, it was that um, people with like severe mental disabilities or like mentally disabled, like psychotic or something like that, that they are more likely to become criminals. So like what they say about them is like in her case, it was that like if the baby has like a physical deformity that they like maybe don't perform a life-saving surgery. Okay. (laughs) A lot to unpack. (laughs) uh, It goes further. But first... Okay. Okay. I do want to say, first of all, I'm not in, on a loose definition of eugenics. A lot of people probably practice it today where there are people who have 
uh, a disability and maybe a heart condition and they know if they have kids, there's a likelihood their kids get it. And they, if they decide not to have kids, then that's kind of practicing eugenics. So there is this, like, I feel like a lot of people are practicing in this looser definition, but to suggest like a life is not worth saving depend as a baby is interesting that Helen Keller would have potentially that view. <laughs> um. Yeah. I mean, it was, there's, and there's a lot of ways that like it's systemically put into practice when you have like the extreme case, like the Nazis, but in the United States and I'll go into it a little bit. There's like, there's like cases where, I mean, where the idea is sterilization of certain people to make it so they're not reproducing so that they, so that you can stop them from creating more similar people in the population. Okay, so so here's a here's a thought. So one way there is systemic eugenics currently in the U.S. legislation is you can, and I support this. You cannot like marry and have kids with your sister or a sibling, and they do this because then you're. I mean, it's weird, obviously, but then your kids can be have tails and be all messed up. So there is one way which I think a lot of people would agree with that you know eugenics is. Uh, implemented in the U.S. legal system, so it's interesting, you know, in that aspect. But anyway, so there's some. Yes, I hear you there. There's definitely some examples where it's like it's being used modern day. Um, there's some weirder examples though. I guess my point around like the 19, and maybe not as much in the case of Helen Keller because I'm reading it online and like who knows what she actually thought because she seemed to be a pretty progressive person and pretty like pro equality in a lot of ways. So it's kind of surprising to see that eugenics next to her name. Um, (laughs) Someone, Alexander Graham Bell, he, according to the internet, (laughs) Alexander Graham Bell, um, he married a deaf woman, but he did not think that deaf people should be able to intermarry because he was worried that their children would contaminate the gene pool. Mm Mm-hmm. W.E.B. Dubois, who's like a um, famous African-American civil rights activist, um, believed, quote, only fit blacks should procreate to eradicate the race's heritage of moral inequity. Yeah. So these are all pretty aggressive. And uh, I will say, uh, I feel like I'm superimposed with anything that's like in legislation. Like if, if you don't want to, if you're Alexander Graham Bell and you're like, I don't want to uh, potentially give this difficult disability to my kid, I feel like that's your choice. But when people start suggesting like to have laws and try to control, it's, the, in my opinion, gets a little aggressive. And it's interesting, all these people, you know, are supporting this uh, kind of survival, the fittest is we need to improve uh, human evolution. So back in the, back in the, uh, so this was, it got more and more popular as we led up to World War II. So back in the twenties and like now we associate a lot of these policies with racism because they were used in a lot of racist ways. Um, they, in Indiana, there were contests called better baby contests where it was basically a beauty pageant for babies where they would like babies and they would like, <laughs> you would line your baby up and they'd be like, yep, that's the best baby. oh my gosh yeah so it was like it it, i was reading about this and it was like it's just like crazy like crazy stuff but it was like common in the country in the united states to have these like baby pageants where you would find like the most like 
yeah quote unquote like perfect baby that's hilarious and, and they would and they would be the winner yeah and, it's like dog shows best in show for babies yeah similar to that which kind of makes dog shows seem weird <laughs> uh, <laughs> so at, at at one point i think 31 states had laws that involved compulsory sterilization of people where the state could make you become sterilized and what type of people would the state so in um buck v bell 1927 u.s supreme court upheld the constitutionality of a law in virginia that allowed for the compulsory sterilization of people in mental institutions so if you were in a mental institution um they could sterilize you could be compulsorily sterilized what we've found in in a lot of our research is that a lot of times people in underprivileged groups, whether it be social class or race, are sometimes put into mental institutions for um, reasons that are not necessarily reasonable. So like the fact that they set up these laws where if you're in a mental institution, they can make you be sterilized. And then the way that it works is they set that one step there where it sounds reasonable to some people at the time, but then what they do is they then enforce it in such a way that they're picking and choosing who are the people that are qualifying for this. And then they're sterilizing those people. Mm-hmm. So what they found around the time was that it was a lot of Latino women. It was a lot of African American women, native Americans were like really um, put into these situations where there were like, there are some of the statistics that I was reading that was something like 15% of Native American, and I could be wrong on this. So um, everyone, <laughs> feel free to research it on your own. But like something crazy, like 15% of Native American women were like subject to like sterilization through yeah. some of the laws in the United States. Crazy, awful stuff. 1937. <laughs> <laughs> Getting closer present day. <laughs> Well, I said pre-World War II because I think I think World War II kind of quashed a lot of the um, the growth of this. But mm. it just goes to show that these are things that happened out in Germany, but the United States was kind of having a lot of similar ideas, maybe not as fascist in the way that they came about, but similar yeah. kind of ideas to I what mean, was popular in Germany. Absolutely. I mean, like the, not eugenics, but the, the fact that we had like those Japanese the fact that the United States had the Japanese concentration camps, I think is very disturbing. Yep. The, in 1937, 67% of Americans supported the sterilization of mental patients and 63% supported sterilization for criminals, for people who had committed crimes. Mm-hmm. Only 15% of the country opposed sterilization of both. So um, only 15% of the country in 1937 believed that like you shouldn't sterilize people at all, regardless of what they do. Do you think there's any circumstance where um, like criminals should be sterilized? Um, like someone like Charles Manson, should he not be allowed to have children? No, I, I, I think it's just uh, too much power for the government and it's probably not that beneficial, but um, you yeah. know. Well, 60, 63% of Americans in 1937 said like you should be able to sterilize them. Oh. Which is pretty uh yeah. No, pretty it, interesting. It, it would be interesting if like let's say there is this like serial killer gene and it, but I don't think there is, but there's this one gene and you're like if you have it there's like an 80% chance you're a serial killer and you're you're going to pass it on to your kid at some likelihood. Like then would people be like, "Eh, like 
you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, he's got this gene in plentiful. Yeah, maybe he can't have kids, but I still don't think I would be for it. Yeah, I think it's just very, it's a slippery slope with a lot of things. It's so slippery. It is, and, it, and that's what they proved back in the back in the 20s and 30s. Like they started creating laws and then they used the laws, people, from pow- people in positions of power started using the laws to put down other people. That's what they did. Yeah. Helen Keller, like she proved something like going into this research, you might not even think that it's possible. If you didn't know how quick Helen Keller was, if somebody says, all right, you're blind and deaf, don't know how to communicate. How do you get to the point where you can write a book and read books? People, I think a lot of people would be like, that's impossible. And Helen Keller proved it. Like she worked with presidents. She promoted social equality. She wrote stories she plagiarized, which is something that is uh, as old as time in America. <laughs> but yeah, um, like she did all those things. She proved that like the seemingly impossible was possible, and like she's gonna live forever in that sense, because like it just goes to show that like if there's a will, there's a way, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, she's so inspirational in in, in what she did. But yeah, Helen Keller, uh, very inspirational, really shows you what like the human spirit and willpower um, can accomplish. Absolutely. Bye, everyone.